like it wouldn't be odd or weird if Sadie makes Sadie, Ian, you know, the youth that we got. They went apple picking yesterday, you know. Um, by the way, the best apple is a Honeycrisp, just in case you're wondering. Um, but it wouldn't be surprising at all if God just takes those, you know, a few kids, you know, and just radically just makes an impact at that school. It's not unheard of. It's not odd in the kingdom. It's not strange. It's actually kind of normal. When he shows up and just authentic hearts just pour out and choose to faithfully just follow him, he does some tremendous things. So continue to just keep praying for our youth. And even, you know, our youth this morning, they came early, um, and they're kind of all different, doing different things throughout the church this morning. Um, They're not meeting together. Um, And... um, you know, and much of the, the reasoning behind that is because, you know, I was with uh, Christine and Ian, we were praying about the year and just talking about our youth and what's going on and what exactly does God want to do? You know what I mean? Like, we can create a program and have stuff and we can set up studies and do a thing and, and, and that's fine and stuff can happen, good things can even come out of that, absolutely. Um, but we're very much concerned about what is the Holy Spirit doing with the youth that we have and, and how do we, like, partner with that and get behind that? That's a lot more of a difficult question to answer. You need some, like, real prayer time, wisdom, and stuff on that. Um, and so they're going to continue to do a lot of important things in and around our church. Because the latest statistics are, and they've been around for a little while, but about two-thirds of kids, you know, that grow up in church, they leave and they never come back. You know, almost 70%. That's a lot. Um, and I think there's a whole lot of reason about why, maybe. But certainly, one thing is that I don't know how many of those two-thirds, they really felt as they grew up, it was their church. They were meaningfully integrated, involved, and needed in their church. A lot of times, they just they go do the youth thing over there. Go do your thing over there. We'll pepper you in maybe on a couple of Sundays and you do something, but... The calling's different, right? The calling is different. Like, it's got to be all of our churches, right? Body, working together, bringing what the Spirit has brought together, working together in unity, regardless of the season. Um, so, so anyways, let's, let's get to it. First Samuel 21, what time we got? 12, 19. Here we go. So let's... Uh, Let's read this passage. This is kind of a crazy passage, by the way. And and let me just catch up in case you forgot from last week. Um, We're reading through the book of 1 Samuel. And we've been looking a lot. uh, God has been bringing out a lot of relationships and and the need for close relationships in life. So we have David and Jonathan, we've been talking about for the past few weeks. And God has stirred up within people some significant mind shifts when it comes to relationships in their lives. Who is close? Why are they close? What kind of access do they have into my life? And so there's been a lot of actually good things happening outside of Sunday. You know, the other six days where people are really being intentional about things and having conversations and thinking about things in ways that they haven't previously. And for all of them, it's been really scary, very vulnerable, and uncharted waters, but good ones. And they've been inspired because of David and Jonathan. And that's one of the themes that's been coming out. Another theme that's been coming out is that God has a plan and purpose on people's lives. He just does. He created us in his image. And we have 
significant value. And we're not a waste in any way, shape, or form. So he's got a plan and a purpose. And he did in David's life too. The interesting thing in David's life is that he was anointed to be king over an entire nation. His seminary and his preparation looked everything. In fact, it was completely opposite of where God had anointed him to be at young, 14, 15 years old. In his living room with his brothers, everybody got passed over. He gets chosen. They crack the horn of oil. They dump it on him. They pray for him right there in the family living room. Next day, he's out in the field watching the sheep. Nothing changed. A couple days after that, he gets called. Somebody hears about this young shepherd guy, and so he gets a little bit of exposure into the, into the kingdom where King Saul is. And then, after a little bit of time, he gets into the battle with David and Goliath. And then all of a sudden, he's very, very famous and popular. So much so that King Saul sees this young stud, really, as a threat. And Samuel had already told him, hey, listen, Saul, you've been obedient repeated times. God is not going to entrust the kingdom or what he wants to do with you because you, you're unfaithful. You've already demonstrated that time and time and time again. So what God is doing because he loves his people and he's going a direction, he's going a direction, and you're not leading it. You were, but you're not anymore. So now, we're going with him. And so Saul knows this, and he doesn't like it. And he's doing everything he can to fight what God wants to do. Because honestly, at the end of the day, Saul is really much more interested in preserving himself, his family line, and the sort of little cushiony thing that he's got going. So he's very aggressively trying to preserve what he wants in the flesh, and battling and fighting what God wants to do in the spiritual and so we pick up in 1 Samuel 21, and David and Jonathan, who are so close, souls knit together, close friends. They just had this really tearful, heartfelt farewell because it, may, it was made very clear that David's now father-in-law, the king of the land, he's gonna, he wants to kill him. He's doing everything he can to kill him. He wants to chase him down and get rid of him. And Jonathan, Saul's own son, he's caught in the middle. It's just this tearful farewell. And so as Sadie was talking about, I mean, as we've experienced in life, you just get to these places sometimes where it's just an, a heavy, heavy just onslaught of emotions of anxiety, fear, overwhelmment, frustration. And it's just, it just feels like everything's caving in. And in David's situation, it really is. I mean, he's got the king just trying to kill him. That's the, that's the one mission right now. So we're picking up as David and Jonathan said goodbye to each other. And so just put yourself in David's sandals, so where would you go? Because Saul is king. He rules over the whole land. He's got, like, wanted posters all over everywhere. So where do you go? So that's where we pick up. First Samuel 21. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So we'll read through it and we're going to pull some things out. 
David answered Ahimelech the priest, King charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. (laughs) What an opening dialogue right there. In case you missed it, they're all lies, okay? In case you missed it, none of that happened. He's not on some secret CIA mission, you know, it's just... We'll dig in more later, but I want to I make sure that we read this here. Verse 4. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Verse 5. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? It's like, oh, jeez. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sung about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? We can go a little bit further. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's households heard about it, they went down to him there. And we stopped there. So, sometimes you see people in life and you're like, you know, especially in social media age. I love how when she was stressed out, by the way, that she, like, she knew she couldn't be on social media. There's a lot of adults that could learn a lot from that, right? It's almost like the more you're stressed out, the more you dive into it, which is like not good. So sometimes you see people in life and in the social media age, you see all these families, you always tend to see the best parts, you know? Like I have never personally posted with any of our kids when they're up from 3.30 to whatever in the morning screaming, you know, like I don't, that doesn't make my Twitter or Facebook list, it just, you know. But you see people in life like, oh, you know, that life just, that seems kind of nice, you know, like. And then some people are like, I wish I could kind of have like their spouse and kind of have what they have, you know, it's just kind of. And so sometimes when we read the Bible and see David, you know, I kind of think, man, like he had an entire, you think of David, you think of David, you think David and Goliath, you think King David, you think the Psalms, and you just, and then as you read about him, he's just, he has like everything. It's like, oh, that'd be kind of nice, sort of to get into DeLorean and maybe go back there, you know, and kind of hang out and enjoy that. And the reality is, 
before you get King David, you have Shepherd David in the fields where nobody was around, developing his relationship with his king when nobody's around. He's not tweeting about it. He's not Facebooking about it. Most of what hap- most of the victories and the enjoyment that he has with God, nobody knows anything about. And that's actually a pretty, really good and healthy thing. So you have David, the shepherd boy, and then you have David on the run. And that's what we just started last week. And he's going to be on the run now for the next 10 to 13 years. He'll be on the run, just running, running, running. And he doesn't make some of the best decisions, as we just read about. One good decision that he made is he went right to the house of the Lord. I asked you, I said, where would you go if you were on the run? And the king, the president, was out to get you, right? And they said, everybody out after you, where would you go? Hopefully someone would say, well, I'm going to go to a church, you know? Like, see, see, no, I guess. <laughs> we'll hide you. We'll hide you. you know, that's, that's what we'll do. We'll hide you. Um, he went to church. But once he got there, he kind of really messed up. Say, hey, listen, priest Ahimelech. And so you got to put, I feel bad for the priest, for Ahimelech. Like, he's put in a really unfortunate situation. David, he's been running. He just had this horrible goodbye with Jonathan. Think about you just like a crying mess. Probably hasn't slept. He's anxious and freaking out. His clothes probably don't look right. He is a significant officer in the army of King Saul. So he shows up to the priest by himself, nobody else, looking like a wreck. And Ahimelech's like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And David's response is, well, I'm on a top secret mission. So much so, I had to leave super fast. That's kind of the way I look. All my men, which he has no men, he's by himself. All my men, they're waiting. We're really hungry. And so we need some food. And we need you to set us up. And so Ahimelech's like, obviously he didn't get word yet of Saul and David and this sort of rift going on how Saul is hunting his life. So Ahimelech says, well, we actually don't really have much here. We just have this bread, special kind of bread. They call it showbread or bread of the presence. Um, and if, you can read about it later this week if you want. It's in Leviticus 24. And basically the purpose of the bread, God told them, um, you're always supposed to have bread set out before me. It was just dedicated um, to me. It's supposed to be fresh bread. It's supposed to be like uh, good bread. There are certain directions on how to make it. I have to get rid of it um, when it starts to become kind of stale and moldy and, you know. So, and when it was kind of getting towards, like, on the out, then the priest would eat it. So you have this bread, and the intention behind it was that the priest would eat it in fellowship um, in the presence of God and was just set for God himself. And so the priest says, well, I, I only have showbread. You know, that, that's all I got. And David's like, all right, well, give me that. And then interesting, David's like, you know what? In fact, it's such a secret mission and I left so quickly, I forgot all my weapons. So he's like, do you have any here? And he's like, well, and it's interesting. He said, well, the only weapon that I got is the sword that actually you used to cut off Goliath's head. That, that's all we got. And he was like, okay, I'll take that. And then what happens is he takes off from there. 
And we're going to read later, like, there are some severe consequences for what David did. It really wasn't, like, good. He lied. He was dishonest. And he not only gets Ahimelech in trouble, and he gets a lot of other people in trouble. And actually, some really bad things happen to them. We're going to talk about next week. But David himself, like, it doesn't happen to him. You know, and that's, that's sometimes, like, when some, some things that play out and just understanding God, it's like, God, that's confusing. Like, I don't, it really worked out unfortunate for them, and they were, like, innocent. But for David, like, he came out okay. And we'll talk more about that next week. So David, after he gets the sword, takes off. He goes to the Philistine land. Gath, Gath. King Achish over there. So he runs to the territory, to the land that he beat. Goliath was the king of. So he's hiding out over there. While he's there, he gets caught by the king over there. He said, hey, that guy David, the one that beat Goliath, he's here, he's hiding now. So they find him, they bring him to the king over there. So David is in like a whirlwind of craziness. I would say craziness. It's just crazy. It's like, I kind of like what we, I see David later, but I don't really want much of it. I don't envy much of his life prior to that. And the reality is, this was the way that the Lord was preparing David for what he was going to inherit later. This is what his season of seminary and preparation looked like. And this is the way God was going to do it. And so, I'm thankful... I'm thankful that David did not continue those patterns or behaviors later on. But you can tell when he got squeezed and the pressure was really on, some stuff that was not so great came out. And I think part of our hearts can kind of like connect with that. I wanted to just share with you this one thought this morning and then we'll get into communion. It's interesting to me that you have David and you have Saul. And Saul, he continued to slide and kind of go in a not-so-good direction of disobedience, of hard-heartedness, of not complete follow-through. Saul continued down that track. David, we just read, he's probably not going to, he's probably not real happy that's in our Bible that we read about, and they have been for generations. Can you think of, like, you had some chapters in your life that was on blast to the whole church for all generations? But as he was sliding down that path, he found a way to bring it back around again. There's a big difference between David and between Saul. Saul, who just kept going in a direction, he said, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. Forget it. It's so much work to turn it back around the right way. I'm not even interested. Some of us approach life like that. It's like that sometimes the things that God is doing and what he's calling us to do in our lives seem so monumental, so overwhelming. It's like, I'll just keep going this way. And that's why things like procrastination and compromise are so dangerous. David, on the other hand, obviously he's having a, a bad time right now, doing a lot of wrong things. And there's going to be some consequences for that. But he was able to turn it around. So the interesting thing to me is, you know, how come David can turn around but saw it like he really couldn't? He couldn't get it together. David, he wrote two psalms during both these episodes. And so he wrote Psalm 56 and he wrote Psalm 34. And it's interesting 
the wording that's in some of those. So if you could, just turn to Psalm 56. We're not going to read the whole thing. And if you don't want to turn there, I might beat you there and I'll read it to you. But the language and the wording involved, I think will help give us a clue as to why David was able to be successful. So Psalm 56. I'm going to give you some of the wording that's here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 4, it says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Verse 10 in Psalm, bless you, in Psalm 56. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do you hear that language? Like, you could read that now in church. If somebody got up this morning and read this passage, they'd be like, wow, somebody's on fire for the Lord. The context couldn't be further from the truth. He's running for his life. Everybody betrayed him. He's completely overwhelmed and anxious. He's doing really stupid things. He pretended to be insane. He thought that was a viable option. Like, okay, we'll just do that. Sad, right? And he's lying to Ahimelech. But as that turmoil, as his outward actions are showing, nothing really of the true faith that has put him in such an amazing position in life. Now, he's really showing something else. His flesh, right? His fear has gotten control of the situation. But the great thing is that helps him. Somewhere in the midst of the craziness and pretending to spit on his beard and you know, and lying and all that, somehow he found some time to write down what was going on inside of his heart. And somewhere within that writing, he's saying, you know what? I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to still praise him. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to still praise him. And he repeats it. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to still praise him. And you have to know, because he says it, he says, I'm not going to let the fear win. Boy, it looks bad. It looks like it's winning now. But I know that I can't. I know that I can't. See, it's very different in David's heart than what was in Saul's heart. Saul's heart was like, it's kind of okay. I did most of what God asked me to do, so that should be pretty good. David's heart was a heart of purity. He's like, no, not only my actions are really bad right now, but my heart is just, this is bad. He never decided to stop praising and stop declaring. It's really important in our lives. No matter the season, no matter the situation, Praise and declaration of truth win battles and bring victories in ways that we don't understand unless we actually do it and we see it. They really do. It's super significant. So that's Psalm 56. That was written when he got captured. He actually wrote Psalm 56 after he lied to him elected, all that stuff. Then he gets captured. He's getting hunted by two kings. He got hunted by his own father-in-law, king of Israel. Then when he moved into Philistine to run away, that king captured him. He's probably like, man, this is just ridiculous. That's when he wrote Psalm 56. 
God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to trust you. I, I can't let fear win. It's like, it's like gaining territory, but I can't. I can't. And then, after he pretends to be insane, spitting all over his beard and saying crazy things, I love the king's response. He's like, do I need more crazy people? No, get him out of here. <laughs> it's kind of fun. After the king kicks him out, the Philistine king, here's what he says in Psalm 34. Some of his language. I want to read the whole thing. He says, I will extol or praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 18, he says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Psalm 34, yet, you know, I like how David was writing, he was believing, he was praying before it happened, as it happened, and after. And Psalm 34 is like, sort of his culmination of like, God is really good. He really did come through. I wasn't quite sure before. I was looking bad, and I, I, I really didn't know. But I'm experienced. Like he is as good as he says he is. I, those moments in life change your life forever. Because then God goes from just this sort of like mental thing I may or may not agree with to this reality of the goodness of his nature and how he truly is bringing his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're all called to live from that relationship and not just preach it and like, theoretically, but have firsthand historical relationship that's current with our king instead of living off of what happened yesterday or 10 years ago, maybe not even ever. So I think that much of David's success was rooted in a heart that would not stop praising and declaring the goodness and the truth of who God is. Even when he himself was acting in a way that's opposite of what he was believing. He was a huge hypocrite, let's be honest. And he knew it. You know he knew it. And just sometimes, you know, we just, just sometimes it goes down like that. And we need a good dose of humility to help us. Got to just be honest about stuff. Got to be honest about stuff. Like, listen, you know what? I tried to get out of this situation. Maybe you didn't try and act insane, but maybe you manipulated. Maybe you procrastinated. Maybe you just straight out lied. Whatever it is. We just have to be honest about things. The interesting thing to me that's, that really blows my mind is I know that it says in the Bible when David was anointed in his living room that the Spirit of the Lord came on him. But the Spirit of the Lord didn't come and take up residence and live within him like it does for us and believers in the New Testament. We're the New Covenant, New Testament, where we have this Spirit that lives inside of us. So the way that we like interact with the Lord and the way that we can uh, live in the inheritance that we have within Jesus, David never had. 
which blows me away even more. So it gives us just a little bit more of an insight of how much his heart, how passionate he was after God and how he needed to be. Because even in the midst of all that, he was so far from perfection. And even though he became king, he really lost his family. The title of the message is, My Peace I Give to You. Because that's what Jesus said to us. That's what Jesus said to us. David couldn't like refer to that. John, we'll turn there. John 14. He couldn't refer to John. Oh yeah, John 14. Let me get a text from Jonathan today and hopefully he'll like, you know, give me some good word from there. Verse 25, it says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything. I have said to you, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jesus says, Man, I paid for it for you. It's accessible. It's accessible. And if you're not quite living in it, if you're not really experiencing it, come closer. Come closer. And that's the message for some of you. Like, that's the reality for you. Like, you just actually need to do that. Come closer. Because those words might seem more like good intentions than a reality that we're called to live in. So we just got to draw closer and abide in our Father and stay close to that vine. And peace is there. Peace is absolutely there. You have, Jesus, you have Jesus sleeping on a boat as a storm is raging. There's no better picture than just peace. I have a hard time sleeping if the air conditioning unit is like too loud. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. So coming closer is really important, and we really need to cultivate the ability. Sometimes we will just slide in certain directions and go certain ways. But we need to cultivate the ability to turn that sucker around. Like, this is not good. My mind cannot go there. I don't know how I let it get there, but I, we can't do this anymore. This is bad. I can't let my language go to this place. This is not good. Right around my life, it's like too comfortable. It's too self-serving. I have too much unforgiveness. There's too much blame. Like, I, this is not. We got to turn this sucker around. I was talking with Jaron. You know, he's playing uh, soccer for his first year, all these six-year-olds, and we do all this hard work of teaching them positions, giving them a strategy, equipping them with the tools needed to be successful on the soccer field. They're all six years old, you know. Rolling on the ground, you know, throwing stuff in the air, playing freeze tag. Put them all in their spaces. You blow the whistle. Woo! To the ball. It's like, man. And then as the game progresses, you know, I just think about like sometimes like we're just like that in life. You know, we just see like life is just going and maybe we're doing okay. But then 
something hits us or like gets our attention, and it's just we just have like tunnel vision. And then just like, well, now I can't do anything else. I'm just, just, you know, focused, and I just, I'm stuck on it. And a lot of times it's something, it's just something like that's just really self centered, probably. It's just gaining too much of us. You know what I mean? And it's usually not healthy. And then what happens is, like, Jaren has this ability to, like, chase down the ball really well. She's good at it. He just sees the ball and he's like, <laughs> but what he does is he gets to it, <laughs> and then he gets it, he doesn't know what to do. He's amazing at tracking, but turning it around, yeah, he's pretty awful. He'll fall over it, you know. It's like, and then sometimes he's just like, forget it, I ran this hard to get the ball, I'm going to keep going this way, and he just keeps running towards our own goal. We're like, turn around, bud, turn around. And I was just like, and we were talking about in the car on the ride home, he's like, you know, I have all these conversations, you know. He's like, Dada, what do I do when I get the ball? I'm like, dude, we got to practice, we got to practice. But it, I very much was just, as I saw it developing, I'm like, you know, I'm like, man, like, the mature Christians, like, they, you know, they might be going a certain direction, but they have an ability to turn that, turn that sucker around, you know. This, it was a lot of work to get at what they're getting at, but I don't know, they're able to turn it around, you know. They never lost that habit of simple decoration and praise and staying close and staying in that place. So although we see David on the decline for sure and not doing really well, on the back end, thanks to some of the psalms that he wrote, there's some encouragement there. And Jesus, in Jesus, for sure, there's definite encouragement. And it's my heart, and I hope it's your heart, for us to truly live in that peace that he talks about. Because it doesn't leave a lot of room for a life filled with anxiety, for a life filled with hopelessness, for a life dominated by discouragement. That kind of peace doesn't leave a lot of room for that. And those are the things that we struggle with. So, um, at this point in time, Keith is going to lead us in communion here. And um, Unique and Brittany, you want to come and pass out the elements for communion? As he's going to set us up? Okay.